Welcome to the Kindling's Muse podcast, an intelligent, imaginative, hospitable exploration of ideas that matter in contemporary life. And now, here's your host, Dick Staub. Well, thank you, everyone, for uh, joining us tonight. We're going to have a wonderful uh, time discussing a very interesting subject. Uh, this is the Kindling Muse at Earl Palmer Ministries, and we do this live event and tape it for podcast. So all of the, uh, the Kindling's Muse at Earl Palmer Ministries are available online. If you go to the Earl Palmer Ministries website, uh, you can find all sorts of great resources, and among them are these Kindling Muse shows. Uh, for those of you listening to the podcast, we're taping at the University of Washington. Uh, every month, Reverend Palmer selects a book every thinking Christian ought to read. He uh, begins with some opening comments, followed by a conversation with me, and then we open up for questions and comments from the audience. Tonight, our subject is Sin and Its Cure, uh, featuring books by a lesser-known inkling, Charles Williams. Uh, perhaps he is lesser-known to us, but he was certainly known in the literary circles among the luminaries of his era. Listen to what T.S. Eliot said of him. There is nothing else that is like a Charles Williams book or could ever take their place. Well, tonight, uh, Reverend Palmer will focus on two of Williams' books, The Forgiveness of Sins and All Hallows' Eve. Will you join me in welcoming Earl Palmer? Well, Charles Williams is best known as a writer of fantasy stories and... Uh, of course, one of those fantasy stories is All Hallows' Eve. And, uh, but he also wrote uh, some really significant uh, Christian, uh, Christian books, uh, uh, The Descent of the Dove, which is about the church and the Holy Spirit, and then this book, uh, which is from the creed, I Believe in the Forgiveness of Sins. And so he wrote a book on the forgiveness of sins. It's interesting, isn't it, that in the creeds, like in the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, and even in our Lord's Prayer, what the phrase that's used to express the gospel, the good news, is that phrase in the third article of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, that's our body, and the life everlasting. So the gospel is expressed by that one phrase, the forgiveness of sins. It's also true in the Nicene Creed. It's also true in our Lord's Prayer, the prayer Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, where he said, this is how to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. First, it recognizes who God is. Uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Again, recognizing God's will in, in the law and the Torah and, and the good news. And then give us this day our daily bread. It's the prayer for our own survival. We're, we're in, we get to survive and we pray for that. And then the great gospel. And, and, and deliver us from our trespasses or forgive our trespasses. And those who have trespassed against us, then it's a prayer that thanks God for the forgiveness of our trespasses and then commissions us to forgive the trespasses of others. And then finally, the protection from evil. Uh, lead us not into temptation, protect us from temptation and deliver us from the evil or actually as the Greek text says, the evil one. Protect us from evil. All Calvin translated that, all the forms of evil. Protect us from that. 
And that's in our Lord's Prayer. Notice the gospel's right at the heart of it. And uh, forgive our trespasses, forgive our sins, and then help us to forgive other people's sins as well. So it has both a mandate with it, but also good news. And that is the forgiveness of sins. John, uh, uh, Charles Williams decided to write this uh, book in which he gives us a theological inquiry into that phrase, the forgiveness of sins. He breaks it into four great parts. He first talks about, you might say, the, uh, the very shape of the way God created the world. And he starts his, he has four great things to teach. First, he teaches the fact that God himself became concretely human. He came among us. Uh, Christ came in the flesh, full of grace and truth. But he came in the flesh. In fact, the first heresy was the heresy that denied that he came in the flesh. You see that in 1 John. That is the heresy. But the truth is, Jesus Christ became a man. And so that's how Charles Williams starts this book, is on the fact that Christ, it's the incarnation, that Christ has come among us in flesh. Then he actually deals with us and talks about the fact that uh, in creation, he talks about, you might say, the epic of creation, that in God's creation, God gives to us, portrays us in a positive truth uh, and gives us the first great sovereign decision that God makes about man is the decision that gives us genuine freedom. We have freedom. And you'll see that freedom has its own dark side, too. But we are given freedom. And that freedom, is, we see it in the garden, but we see it throughout the Bible. This uh, amazing freedom of, uh, of decision-making and the freedom of will that we get. And then we are given stewardship authority right in the epic account of creation. Uh, it's interesting is that when man is created, male and female, God created him. And then the animals are brought before man, and we get to name all the animals. Have you ever thought of that? God does not name the animals. We name the animals. He calls them what we call them. And that naming of the animals, the beginning of science, is really the beginning of stewardship authority. And actually, that's how it's portrayed in that Genesis account. We're given a stewardship authority in the created order. And that is symbolized by the fact that we get to name all the animals. And then alongside of, of that reality, uh, we, get to, we are presented with the power that man has and, uh, and that power that we have on our side makes choices. But uh, the dark choices we, we often make is the choice, we call that the fall, is that we make choices both inward and outward that are, uh, that are tempted. We are tempted with the choices that we make. And so we're tempted inwardly to make ourselves Lord. Like Bonhoeffer put it, we were meant to live from the center, and the first sin is when we chose to live at the center. And so we are given that power that was part of the positive thing in creation. And then what negatively happens is that we choose uh, our own way, to go our own way, or we choose to follow a tempter, to follow the tempter. What our Lord says, we should pray for protection from, the temptation, from temptation. But we're tempted uh, by powers outside of us 
to belong to them other than God and not, not to belong to God who is the one we made, who made us, who we get our meaning from, and, but from some other source, and that's called the tempter. But the story's not over. The story then goes on. In fact, I like the way Charles Williams actually describes that, uh, that, uh, that sin decision we make, this, you know, the fall, the fall of our sin. He says, so sin came in, but what is sin? It is easier to talk about it, to preach about it, to rebuke, perhaps even to repent, than to understand. Man had in some way determined to be greedy or curious or proud, and that offense is sin. And that is an interesting way that Charles Williams has sort of a quirky and clever way of putting things, but he put it that way. But the story's not over. And then comes this amazing, uh, amazing uh, break and brand new thing that happens, which is the fourth great a part of his uh, discussion of the forgiveness of sins. And that is that the one who concretely comes alongside of us in creation, uh, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, he then uh, becomes the source of our forgiveness. Jesus Christ then, he says, uh, he became then forgiveness in flesh. He lived the life of forgiveness this undoubted fact serves as a reminder that forgiveness is an act in the Bible and not a series or set of words. It is a thing to be done. Something happened. It's sort of what Karl Barth calls the word and the work go together. What Jesus Christ said, he did. And that is the forgiveness of sins. It becomes the great gospel center. It's a thing to be done. It may be done easily or with difficulty, but it is, there's no alternative to it being done. Uh, there is no spirit of forgiveness. That's a beautiful thing, he says, but it does not exist except in acts. At any rate, so far as we're concerned, forgiveness then is something that happens. It happened at the cross. And, Cal, and John, uh, uh, Charles Williams makes a huge thing of this. This forgiveness is won for us at, at an event uh, in, in Holy Week on the, the cross of Christ in which he does what no one else can do. He takes human sin. He takes this arrogance of our sin upon himself, and he takes uh, the evil that tempts us on himself, and he uh, defeats these by absorbing them and taking them. No one else can do that. No other prophet can do it. Uh, no one claims to do it. He does claim to do it. He takes the sin and takes uh, the evil, that is the, the, the evil of temptation, and actually disarms it, and then also takes death and conquers death. And that, of course, is that vindication we see on Easter morning. So on Friday, he takes all of these three uh, dangers and the, the three dangers, the three threats of our life and our existence, he takes to himself and then he conquers them. And he conquers them uh, and we, as a result, have life, the life everlasting. 
Well, that's the book, the, in a nutshell, that's, that is this little brief book, The Forgiveness of Sins. He literally tracks it and tracks these four great themes of the incarnation of Christ, the fact that Christ came alongside of us. I like the way, you know, he's not a Barthian. I don't want to credit Charles Williams as being a, a scholar of Karl Barth, but I love the way Barth uh, d- describes the, uh, the great second article, the article, and the first and second articles of the, of the creed, I believe in God the Father, and I believe in Jesus Christ the Son. And Bart puts it the way, just the way, same way Charles Williams does. He says that the heart of the object of Christian faith is the word of the act, notice act, in which God from all eternity willed to become man in Jesus Christ for our good, did become man in time for our good, and will be and remain in eternity for our good. This amazing concreteness of Christ, the concreteness of his love, and that is interesting, isn't it, that the gospel is described in all the creeds with that phrase, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, which would be all of those Christians that surround us and pray for us, the forgiveness of sins, that's the mighty act of what Christ did in our behalf, the resurrection of the body, and which is our resurrection, our victory because of, of that, of, of eternal life and the life everlasting. Amen. That's the third article of the, of the Apostles' Creed. The same is true in the Nicene Creed. And the same thing is, is true in our Lord's Prayer, where he put forgiveness at the center of the good news. And that was very impressive to Charles Williams, that forgiveness of sins, where God can handle our sins... Our sins are not the last word. They're, they can be coped with. They can be resolved. And, all, and, the, and also, the tempter that tempts us, to, part of our sins are the t- sin just uh, to be uh, Lord of my own life, and the other kinds of sin is when I choose to follow something other than God and make that the center of my life, some cult or some political movement or some... Uh, uh, tempting uh, uh, way of, of living that is not obedient to Jesus Christ and obedient to God's uh, love, then that becomes an, an evil that tempts me and that's, that I, I need to be forgiven from as well. It's interesting. He wrote this book in 1942, The Forgiveness of Sins, and it's right in the heart of World War II. And then he wrote one year later a fantasy story which, in my opinion, the goal of the fantasy story, All Hallows' Eve, by the way, All Hallows' Eve is uh, All Saints' Day. And in this novel, it comes to its conclusion on All Saints' Day, which is Halloween, of course. That's a very important holiday in in the liturgical calendar. And so he wrote a, a fantasy story called All Hallows' Eve. And so I wanted to put these two together because in this story he illustrates as I see it and gives an example of the power of the good news the power of the forgiveness of sins the power of Christ to protect us from the evil one which is in the Lord's prayer to protect us from death and to protect us from uh, ourself and our own evil he protects us from that uh, in 
in the good news. And so he wrote this story. Let me tell you about the story. The story is set in London it, during, uh, during the actual closing uh, days. It's because he wrote it in 1940. If you think of, he wrote uh, uh, Forgiveness of Sins in 1942. He wrote this in 43, 44. And ironically, and, and it's true and sad in a way that Charles Williams died, a young man really, in 1945, at the very close of World War II, he died right after writing this book, All Hallows' Eve, which uh, T.S. Eliot wrote the introduction to All Hallows' Eve and thinks it's probably his best book. This amazing story, he wrote, which illustrates the power of goodness over against evil, but it does it in a remarkable and quirky uh, Charles Williams way. The, the, the story is set in, uh, in England, it's during the bombing raids, uh, because in, at one point in the story, a young man named Jonathan, who's an artist, draws a picture of London. It's a picture of London in, uh, with a lot of it in rubble, with all of the, the damage that's been done by the bombing raids. And then over in the, in the middle of it, but in the mist, is the remaining tower of St. Paul's Cathedral. As you know, throughout the, all the bombing raids, in, in, in the entire Blitz and the, the Battle of Britain, St. Paul's Cathedral, though it was hit by the Luftwaffe, hit it about five times, but they never took that building down. And so looking through all of the debris of, of the Battle of uh, Britain every day, people would look and see, is, the, is St. Paul's Cathedral still there? And it was. And so this young artist, Jonathan, who plays a part in the story, had drawn that picture. And... Uh, and there was a strange source of light in the picture. Everybody notices it. His friend Richard, who looks at it, notices there's sort of a light coming from near where St. Paul's Cathedral is, that strange sort of source of light. But nevertheless, it's a picture of the rubble, a lot of rubble of London, and yet in the middle of all that is this remaining sort of sentinel, and that would be St. Paul's Cathedral still poking its head above. Okay, now we meet some characters in this story. Uh, the, uh, the, the first character we meet is, is a, a man named Simon the Clerk. We meet him uh, right away, and he is a cultic leader. We, he turns out to be pure evil, but we don't know. At that time, he's just a leader who has all kinds of people who, want, who adore him, and uh, he has a message that he uh, preaches. He's a preacher in a way. He's not called a pastor. He's called Simon the Clerk. And then he has a devoted follower who is absolutely devoted to him. She's a woman about 50 years of age. Her name is Lady Wallingford. And Lady Wallingford has a daughter named Betty. And now Betty will be probably the main character in this story. The most important character in the story is the daughter of Lady Wallingford. Lady Wallingford is uh, as evil and as uh, caught up in, in this uh, tempting evil as, as is Simon the Clerk. That's what he calls himself, Simon the Clerk. But uh, the interesting plot that develops is that Simon the clerk has a, created a mythic vision that if he can find this perfect transmitter-type person, which would be this innocent girl who is the daughter of Lady Wallingford, and they will raise her, and uh, 
she will be trained to become a, 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 a transmitter, will be able to go into spiritual territories that the Simon the clerk has dreamed. Remember, this is a fantasy story now, but he's dreamed out these, these uh, directions that he wants her to go in, in the trances that he puts her in. And, she'll, and so she's being almost uh, cultivated in this direction and trained by her mother and this uh, uh, leader of this cultic group. And so uh, they, they, they do these trances throughout the, the, the story. She's being sent and then she comes back and tells what she's discovered and he is endeavoring to find a source of power there would be a source that would be, make him uh, almost invincible power if he could find it. And, but something always roadblocks it. There's two things that roadblock it. When she's sent in these trances, the first is that there's a young man, and that's just Jonathan. Jonathan, who did this painting, she had met in school, in school when she was... It, she was allowed to go to school, except that Mrs. Wallingford and the clerk kept her isolated, almost like in a twilight zone, so that she couldn't really have friends. But she fell in love, and Jonathan falls in love with her. Now, he's a, a very simple, devout believer, actually. He's the only person featured in the story early on who is a believer, but he is a believer. And uh, but he's an artist, and, or he, and he is a great art, an artist, in which the, uh, Simon the clerk uh, commissions him to draw a painting of him. And that's how he gets, he, because he's in love with this girl, he is willing to do this because that would maybe make it easier for Mrs. Wallingford, who's trying to block their relationship, to allow her, him to see her. So he agrees to draw, do this painting. It's interesting, he shows the painting of the rubble of London to uh, the Simon the clerk, and he despises that painting. And in fact, he says, you must destroy that painting. I'll give you paintings to do that will make you a great painter because she had painted him, and he wants him to do that. But that is this young Jonathan who we meet. So Jonathan as, uh, uh, plays a part now uh, because he's dr uh, drawn this painting. And in the painting... Uh, he showed it to uh, uh, to young Betty, who's his age. She's a young woman, beautiful young woman, uh, but totally under the captivity of her uh, aggressive and very dangerous mother. And then this clerk, Simon the clerk, and she uh, she sees the painting, and she loves St. Paul's Cathedral in the painting, and and. Uh, it just makes a great impression on her. So she likes that. And then Jonathan, she's in love with. And she clings to him uh, in a way when she gets into these trances. And, uh, and the Simon clerk sends her on these trances. She comes back and, and they're roadblocked because she uh, can't remember the things he sent her to try to find out uh, because he's trying to see what spiritual... A discovery she'll make, but she keeps uh, thinking about uh, Jonathan, who is in love with her, and she is in love with him, and so she's, he's a human connection, 
which her mother did not want her to have, but that happened anyway because in school they met. And so she keeps thinking of him, and that roadblocks the spiritual breakthroughs that she was trying to, supposed to have for Simon the clerk. And the other thing is, when she's on these trances, she has experience of rain, and the rain falls and, and falls on her. And also, at one point in when she comes back, she explains that she has this experience of being in a lake because in her mind, in her imagination, there is a lake that surrounds St. Paul's Cathedral in her picture. And she has this picture of a lake in which she's in the lake. And then uh, uh, she's swimming in that lake. And then at one point... Uh, a lady lifts her out of the lake and she, the lady bends down and lifts her and, she, and Betty says, I don't want to leave the lake, but I like the lady. It was almost as if she was my real mother. Uh, and she says, there, dearie, no one can undo that. Bless God for it. That's what she says. And he reports, she reports that to uh, uh, Simon the clerk, who's not happy about that at all, that she has this always feeling this lake and always feeling rain falling on her when she's there. And it, so it, it roadblocks her spiritual breakthroughs. And he recognizes that's happening. And, but they can't figure it out. Uh, there's always rain falling when she's trying to concentrate on, on the trances and what he wants her to see. And or remembering Jonathan, this young man who loves her, and uh, and but she he can't get near her because Mrs. Wallingford will not let him near, and nor does Simon. So finally, one day, uh, uh, Jonathan and his friend uh, Richard, uh, uh, Richard is a widower whose wife had been killed in in a bombing raid just rec just at the beginning of the story. She's killed. And so he's a widower, and he's, uh, but he's a very close friend of Jonathan's. He sees the paintings. And he and Jonathan, they go to the, the, the so-called worship service of the Simon the clerk, and they sense, uh, Richard doesn't know much about, he's just an agnostic, but Jonathan feels there's something very, very bad spiritually about it. There's something wrong about this Simon the clerk. In spite of what he says, he's so controlling. And so he's very uh, worried about that. So anyway, Richard and Jonathan decide to surreptitiously kind of spirit Betty away from Mrs. Wallingford, her so-called mother. And so she, uh, they go and they, they decide that they're going to take her to lunch. And they, uh, they even uh, tell the, the Simon the clerk who is controlling that house and Mrs. Wallingford, that they want to just take her to lunch. So they take Betty to lunch. And when she's in lunch, she says, oh, you know something? Since we're out, we're in part of London here, I would love to see my old nanny, the nanny I had when I was just a, a, a little child. And, and then she got fired because uh, uh, she uh, did some things evidently that were wrong, and Mrs. Wallingford fired her. But I miss her so much, and that with my nanny. But they looked her up in the phone book, and they figured out who she was, Jonathan and Richard, and they take her 
to uh, to this lady's house, and that is probably one of the most uh, touching scenes uh, in in the in, in the uh, in the entire story is when they go and go to her house, and the lady uh, who is the lady who is the uh, had been her uh, had been her nanny in those in those early years. Uh, she uh, she uh, is so happy to see this girl, and so she begins to uh, talk to her, and they uh, and they uh, get to ask her questions about uh, what's going on in her life, and then and then she uh, and because this girl has such a warm memory of of her, so she says. Uh, she wanted to go and see her, and so they do go to see her. And I want to just read you that one, uh, that one interesting scene uh, where uh, where Mrs. Uh, her name her name is Mrs. Plumstead, and she sits upright and she says, "No," she says. Uh, uh, you know, I was young when I was taking care of you, and uh, I think I'd, I, I took things to myself, which I, sh I sh wouldn't do now, for I don't think it was quite proper. Her ladyship and I didn't see eye to eye, but after it was, uh, uh, after all, she was your mother, my dear, and no doubt she meant well with you, and uh, if I'd done it again, maybe I shouldn't do it, and then... And then she said, well, my dear, the old nurse went on over so faint, ever so faintly blush. As I say, I was younger then, and in a way I was in charge of you. And I was a little too fond of my own way and very obstinate in some things. And now I do not think it's right, but you were such a dear little thing. And I did once mention to the lady that weren't they putting off too much uh, getting your christening. They were postponing it. Of course, that was deliberate. They didn't want her christened at all, of course. And, and, and she said, pray, nurse, do not interfere. Her ladyship and I never did suit together. I ought to have left her at that. I, I do think now that I was obstinate and that you were such a dear little thing, and it did seem such a shame. And so the old nurse uh, said, unaware of the intensity of the silence in the room, well... I christened you myself. And so she said, no, it wasn't right, Mrs. Plumstead said, but there it was. For I thought there's no harm it couldn't do you. And besides, getting back to, uh, she was a wicked woman, and I, uh, I just felt that I just couldn't obey her in all, all these things. So I got the water, and I prayed God to bless it, though I don't know how I dared, and I marked you with it and said the holy name, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And well, I can't get the poor dear, uh, God, I couldn't get a dear godfather or godmother, but the Holy Ghost will be your godfather and I'll do what I can. And so I would have done only soon uh, had her ladyship not uh, uh, suited me that way. And then she, of course, fired her uh, for this. And she said, uh, but uh, I did that, and then Betty says to her, so it's you who lifted me out of the lake. See, now she remembers her dream. 
when she was in the trances to try to get these spiritual breakthroughs for the for the Simon the clerk, she remembered the lake, which is where she thought was St. Paul's Cathedral, had a lake in it. It wasn't a lake, and but that's what she imagined. And she in the in the imagining, she was in the lake, and a, a lady lifted her out of the lake. And I said, I remember that. So you were the one who lifted me out of the lake. And uh, uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Charles Williams, the author, then says, the natural affection of this woman and, and, and her granddaughter had in fact dispelled the shadow of giant schemes. But anyway, Charles Williams is uh, now you're getting to the close of his story uh, uh, because now the story quickly comes to when, uh, when these two young men realize what a cult this is. They go to his center of the cult and then a catastrophic thing happens. An absolutely pouring rain falls and rain not only falls on the people but through the people. And it's everybody, and of course that happens to the uh, to Simon the clerk, and the Simon the clerk is actually washed away, and uh, the uh, it's a catastrophic event, and uh, uh, and and these uh, and Betty is there, and Betty uh, survives it, and uh, Jonathan is there in because the, the the uh, uh, the clerk takes a knife and wants to try to kill Betty, feels that then he can take her with control and into his, uh, into his cultic uh, uh, mythic world. And, uh, but the rain washes and the rain comes through him and it's, it's very dramatic in the, in the thing. And then Jonathan actually goes up and tries to help her and does help her and pulls her away from uh, Simon the clerk, who's now washed away. Uh, he's now ended. And, uh, and of course, one of the last lines is after uh, he pulls her away and uh, holds her, and they came out. She hardly turns back to Richard. They look at uh, one another, and she is white and worn and supported by her lover and her friend. And then she murmured uh, with the last, a flashing smile, well, that's done. And uh, so th this is his story. Notice what he's done. He has uh, decided to give a kind of, in a fantasy story, the, the, two, the two elements that are in the third article of the creed. And he puts them together. Uh, what protects you from uh, temptation? What protects you from evil? It's the communion of saints. See, in the third article of the creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the church, the communion of saints. That's what Jonathan was. He's the communion of saints in Charles Williams' story. He is that saint who is holding on to this girl. She's holding on to him. And that breaks up the cultic power. And then, of course, uh, the amazing washing of baptism, the washing of God's grace. It's God's grace that finds us and forgives our sins and makes us whole. And that's why uh, the, uh, uh, in the Nicene Creed, it, it actually uses the phrase, 
I believe in the one holy Catholic apostolic church, the, uh, the, the one baptism for the forgiveness of sins and the life everlasting. That baptism for the forgiveness of sins, that washing, the washing, it's different than John the Baptist's baptism. That's a baptism of repentance. But this is the baptism of washing, the baptism of being made whole, the baptism of having your sins forgiven, of Jesus Christ now asserting his authority over temptation, over death, over evil. And so uh, that's how Charles Williams decides to now, in a fantasy atmosphere, give a little... Uh, 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 another look at the uh, theological theme of I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Hmm. Well, I don't know how many of you have read the book, and I'm not going to embarrass you by asking, but that was a pretty amazing summary of a really, really complicated book. <laughs> so we're going to be back with more of Earl Palmer right after this. Don't go away. Everybody, this is Dick Staub. I'm your host of the Killings Muse at Earl Palmer Ministries, and we're having a great time. Uh, literally, the uh, All Hallows Eve book. I uh, told my wife I, I was a philosophy major, so I'm used to reading esoteric material, and that was that book was unlike any other book, really. I mean, it, it, it so to hear Earl describe it so matter-of-factly. I mean, he didn't even talk about one of the key characters, which is the first character we meet is Lester. And this is what is said of, of Lester. Uh, now I'm going to be stumbling around looking for, for my notes, but I, but I love this line. Uh, the New York Times, All Hallows' Eve was, was um, given rave reviews on, in the UK and in the United States. The New York Times said, it is satire, romance, thriller, morality, and glimpses of eternity all rolled into one. And then he's describing the character that Earl didn't even mention, Lester, who is the first character, I think, to show up in the book. I, uh, I, I hinted at her. I said, remember that Richard's wife was killed in, in the raids. Yes. Actually, that is the opening of the novel, which takes the first... The first quarter of the novel is I rest Lester. My, I rest my case. Oh yeah, Lester and her and her friend, uh, who she doesn't like very well, who are both classmates of Betty. Yes. So twenty-five so percent of the book. But they are both dead, and now they're walking around. Yes. And yes. And they know they don't have long because they know they're going to fade finally out completely. Yes. But they're and so that's Charles Williams. Uh, you have to like a little of that. Yeah. Well, so as I'm mentioning, twenty-five percent of the book. Lester is a key character. He didn't even mention her, but here's what the New York Times, you know, they said all these wonderful things, and here's a sentence of Charles Williams about Lester. She was a quite ordinary and rather lucky girl, and she was dead. <laughs> so if that's your cup of tea. No. Well, I want to clear up one thing to start. And by the way, she was a very good person because she uh, is rooting all the way for Betty but they can't see her, you know. She can see them, and she sees her husband, Richard, and he's uh, agnostic at the beginning of the story, but he becomes a uh, much more devout as the story goes on because of Jonathan. But it's, it is true that uh, Lester, 
Lester is a, a classmate of Betty. And, uh, and so she's so aching to see Betty caught up in this cult. Yeah. And she wants her to get out of it, but she doesn't, she can't, she can't be seen. It's, it's wonderful, yeah. So I just want to clear up one thing. Um, at one point, uh, Williams refers to William Blake as heretical in, in the book Forgiveness of Sins. And that seemed interesting to me, given the fact that some people say that Charles Williams was heretical. As a matter of fact, there's a website uh, devoted to the oddest inkling, which is Charles Williams, and they say that Charles Williams can't really be trusted with his theology because he was so interested in the occult. Earl seems to be fading away. Uh, no, I, I, <laughs> there is, uh, I will I would do a little show and tell. I put a little selectability. You know, remember the microphone, my brother. I, I told you about the, the selected, uh, I, I wrote a selected uh, bibliography for you there. But this is a brand new book on Charles Williams. Because now, finally, everybody is discovering Charles Williams. It's called Charles Williams, The Third Inkling. And it's got a picture of Williams and Lewis and Tolkien together. And uh, it's, but Williams died in 1945. And right afterward, uh, Lewis and, and Tolkien and uh, Dorothy Sayers, who loved Charles Williams. In fact, Dorothy Sayers gives credit to Charles Williams for the fact that she translated Dante's Inferno because he loved Beatrice, and he wanted her to, to translate it from Italian, and she did. And, but also Tolkien, who at first was suspicious of Charles Williams, because remember, Tolkien's very Catholic, and he didn't like all this flirting with the occult, which Charles Williams did. I have to tell you, if you're a, if you're a West Coaster, did you know that in the earliest part of his life, he was a member of the Rosicrucians? movement in San Jose, California. You know that? That was a cultic group in San Jose. And he was interested in that because they're interested in pyramids, you know. And so if you can get in a pyramid, you get power by being in the pyramid. He grew out of that fast, but he still had this fascination with, uh, with fantasy. And, uh, but he was a, a, a very earnest believer. And so we are grateful for that. But, you know, it just shows you God can use all kinds and, uh, and Charles Williams. But anyway, I was going to say that because of that friendship of Charles Williams with L Lewis and Tolkien, when, when he died, uh, they put a book together, and it was published also by Oxford Press, called Letters Presented to Charles Williams. And this has the most brilliant essay of all, is the essay by J.R. Tolkien. I've quoted from it. That's where he talks about the eucatastrophe. Uh, and gives all that. Also, Dorothy Sayers, C.S. Lewis. Uh, it's just amazing. It's, they're all essays in tribute to this man, uh, Charles Williams. Sadly, out of print, and the used copies run around $65 to $85 for that But I, I guarantee, since it was originally published by Oxford Press, and now that this brand new book is published by Oxford Press, I'm sure... The, uh, the little one will be out soon again, probably published by Oxford, so you can keep up with Charles Williams. So um, at the beginning of his book on forgiveness, he has this sentence, how is it possible to write a book on the forgiveness of sins? It is impossible. Why did he think the forgiveness of sins was such a difficult concept to understand and to write about? I mean, did he feel that we were missing something essential? 
Well, I did read that one quote, uh, but I maybe not didn't read it far enough in that quote. But he says, you know, forgiveness is something we, uh, it's like sins. We can, we can talk about them, we can rebuke you about them and all, but we don't understand them. Uh, and Charles Williams is very interested in the fact that we don't really understand our sins. We don't really understand what's so wrong about being tempted and following a temptation of some, like, for instance, in politics, instead, when you get caught up in something and then you, you, you got your, your, you're doing it and faithfully, but you're not thinking it through. You're not thinking through necessarily all the, the things that you're, you're agreeing to. And the same thing is true with religion. You get into some religious, uh, maybe that's because Charles Williams had experience with being a Rosicrucianist and realized I got into these crazy pyramid things and I go over to Egypt and try to get inside the pyramid and you're just about killed doing that. And they felt there was some special power being in a pyramid. And so he said, I realized that was foolishness. But it is true, you don't understand your sins. And then the same thing, that means that forgiveness is an event that happens. And being an event, it has to stand by itself. And it's a little bit, that's a great Karl Barth insight too. Remember, I had that one quote from Barth that I always love. You cannot separate the word from the work. And a lot of bad theology happens when we separate the word from the work and create an elaborate theory about what uh, redemption will be or elaborate theory about... Uh, this or that theme, but it's an event that happens. Uh, Christ died in history, an event. It's not something uh, uh, like in the spiritual mist. It's, an, a, it's a concrete event that happened in history. And, there, and, and so Charles Williams got caught up with that too. When you think about the unique contribution he made to the subject of forgiveness, some people observe that it was the degree to which in All Hallows' Eve, he was kind of exploring and fleshing out the idea of the communion of saints. That, yes. that forgiveness and redemption is not just one person in, in a battle with dark and, and light, but it is in fact groups of people and people in community that are wrestling with these things. Right, now, once again, notice the influence both of Dorothy Sayers and on Charles Williams uh, on Lewis. Because D uh, Dorothy Sayers was very, very big on the fact that the creed is the, is the drama. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. It has all the themes. And then the third article, and that's what's most interesting now to Charles Williams. I believe in the Holy Ghost, and then notice the various things. Now we're getting, because in, in Holy Spirit theology, we're talking about in the first article in two, about God the Father and the Son, that's the event that happened. See, that's all event. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried, descended into hell. That's concrete, see? That's what Jesus did. That, and like Karl Barth said, that's the most important part. But then you come to the third article, the Holy Spirit, which is the part of theology that says, and what does all this mean for us? What would be the effect in my life if all of this was true, okay? And then you get, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. The church is born 
by the Holy Spirit winning people to discover this. And then notice the communion of saints. And Charles Williams was very intrigued. And I really believe that's why he has Jonathan play such a big part. Jonathan is one of the reasons she can't get her trances. They won't work for the evil saint is because there's a person out there, a real human being who is also a check and balance. You know, think of it in your own life. Very often somebody in your life plays that role of praying for you, caring about you, mm. or there's some, they, they become a, uh, what Lewis would call a touchstone of reality. These people, and notice that's in the, the, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the Catholic Church, that's the whole fellowship of, of believers. Then the forgiveness of sins. The one big thing that tells what happened in the event. And then the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. See, it's all to do with what's happening to us now. And uh, Williams was very intrigued by that. And, of course, so is the creed. The creed is intrigued. Think of all the ways you could describe the gospel. And the creed decides to describe it with one phrase, the forgiveness of sins. It shows mm -hmm. that there is a crisis and there is an answer to the crisis. And, you know, so it doesn't give much comfort to people who say, well, I don't even want a crisis. I'd rather not have a crisis. Let's just have all wonderful stuff to begin with. But no, you've got to cope with the crisis. There is a crisis in everyone's life for which forgiveness is needed. Our Lord said it. Uh, forgive us our trespasses. Hmm. Not forgive us if we have trespasses. But forgive our trespasses. And that's our Lord puts that in the heart of the Lord's prayer. Hmm. That's the good news. And then help us to forgive others. And then protect us from the evil one. Protect us from evil. And, of course, Charles was obviously the big thing that he's working with is the protection of Betty. What protects her? One, Jonathan plays a role. But the big is that little nursemaid who had been fired because she baptized her. And the mother didn't even know that, but she did it. And that means that she prayed for her. You know, that's the theology of baptism. In the theology of baptism, we take a baby, we pray for that baby. That's why we, in, in covenant theology, we are praying for them and claiming the good news for that yeah. child. And we're claiming it. Now, Charles Williams, being very high in, in sacramental uh, theology, would believe that's a very important thing. It's not just something spiritual. It's something concrete. Yeah. When you pray for that, when that nursemaid prayed for that little girl, a protection was put around that little girl yeah. for the rest of her life. And it's interesting that when she saw St. Paul's Cathedral, she saw a lake around. It wasn't, there is no lake around St. Paul's Cathedral, but there was for her. And it was water. And of course, that's a reference to baptism, see? which cathedral is, you know, the good news. One of the interesting things, too, is, is with both Lester and Richard, Lester who has died, and Richard who was her husband but was not a believer, uh, you see them having their eyes open to evil. Yes. And, and Lester talks about she never even thought about death. She had not thought about things that were going to be so significant. And now her eyes are being opened to the fact that there is a genuine spiritual warfare 
going on. And that's the same thing that happens with Richard. Yes, yes. And they don't want to see bad things happen to Betty, so they, they band together to try to stand with her and help her. And they get that marvelous moment. Uh, really, I broke out crying when I read that, the first time I read that, that when they go, Betty says when they go to the lunch, I is, you know what I would love to do? I'd love to go see the, my old nursemaid. By the way, you know that Winston Churchill uh, only had one picture in his in his bedroom, and that was of his uh, was of his nursemaid, not even his mother. Yeah, Winston Churchill was totally uh, he loved his nanny, and she played a very big part in his life, and uh, and and maybe that, again that's something English, but I don't know. Charles Williams wanted that there, that sh this little nursemaid. Uh, who uh, baptized that baby because she felt that baby should be baptized. She said it to the mother, and the mother said no. And then she did it because that child, she said, needs, I know I shouldn't have done that. That was wrong, but I did it. And, uh, and I prayed for that baby and said, God bless her. And by the way, I didn't read all of that where she goes to the lake in her trances, and in that, in the, one of those of the, in the lake, when the lady is lifting her out, the lady says, uh, blessings on you, dearie. Like your little girl, blessings on you, dearie. And God's bless you. And, and that, that ruined his trances. See, he couldn't get through that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the light is stronger than the darkness. You yeah. can't suppress the light. I, one of the things that uh, William said is that many promising reconciliations have broken down because while both parties come prepared to forgive, neither party came prepared to be forgiven. What is the interaction there between, what is the challenge to us accepting forgiveness? Yeah. Wow, that, and that's good. I'm not sure that the All Hallows' Eve helps us as much with that theme, but it sure does in, in some ways because uh, uh, Richard has to learn how to be forgiven because he's been very uh, taken Lester very much for granted, and she was taking him for granted. So uh, uh, he—that's uh, one of the things that happens to him. He uh, regrets the fact that he can't once again tell Lester how much he he loves her, and because he realized that he didn't do that enough, and. Uh, and then, of course, now she's been hit by a bomb. She was hit, actually, by an airplane. An airplane crashed and killed her and Evelyn. Uh, Eve Evelyn's nothing to brag about because Evelyn was very mean to Betty when Betty was a, a girl. Lester was kind to her. And uh, so Lester is also a positive memory for Betty, not Evelyn. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting because uh, in the Lord's Prayer, he is teasing out, Jesus is teasing out the idea that we are, who are willing to allow God to forgive us must forgive others. And another things, a thing that William said is, is, it is easier often to forgive than to be forgiven, yet it is fatal to be willing to be forgiven by God and to be reluctant to forgive men yeah. or to be forgiven by men. So it's uh, it, these are very very interesting books. Uh, I, I, I usually I've read the books that Earl recommends 
before before the show, and I so I kind of review them again. But I had not read either of these books, and the combination of them were quite vexing to me. Uh, and I don't know if any of you had that experience. They're just you have to allow yourself to enter a completely other world in All Hallows Eve, and in forgiveness. You know, it's interesting, when I was studying what people have said about Williams, a lot of people described him more as a theologian than as a literary figure, because there is some very interesting nuance to theologies. I'm not saying this to discourage you from reading these books, but just to let you know that, um, that it's a very different experience, yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, the... Uh the, the power of forgiveness, and, and Will, Williams saw that, and I think that's a gift we, we have to thank him for. He saw that power of forgiveness, that forgiveness is an event that happens, and it does have power to protect us, and power to, because that is, he's reflecting, of course, on the gospel. The gospel has power to protect us, and to protect uh, uh, us from evil and from temptation. And that temptation is probably the big thing in this story, because that's what Simon, the, the clerk, is. He's a tempter. Yeah, dark figure. Dark figure. Well, we're going to be back with more right after this. We'll get back to our audience's questions, and uh, looking forward to that as well. We'll be back momentarily. Don't go away. just ran. Can we have a big round of applause for my wife? Can I put her on the spot? She's a woman that knows a lot about forgiveness. She's been given great opportunities to master that in our marriage. We're now going to uh, question and answers from the audience. It's always an exciting time. And tonight, Tate is going to uh, take the microphone around to those of you who had questions. And uh, let's get going. All right, Steve, what's your question? Right. Well, maybe I'll read it. So, um, what do you think Williams would have to say about how sin is understood in our contemporary American culture? Which I think I'm especially thinking about that probably the greatest sin for an American today is not accepting someone who's different than them. Uh, what, what part of American, uh, you usually mean American culture or contemporary culture? Contemporary culture, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I think... Uh, I, I really think there is a relevance in, uh, I'm trying to think of all of the things about Charles Williams that would be particularly useful. Um, I do think that the biggest gift he gives us is he really does try to understand the intoxicating power of temptation that, is, that has a kind of a spiritual edge. Uh, you know, mythic type of, of temptation. The very thing that at first made Tolkien suspicious of him, but after all, Tolkien is also a writer of fantasy stories too. He wrote the, great, the greatest of all fantasy stories, Lord of the Rings. But yet he was a little suspicious of the, there was this sort of the spooky element of the, these dead people walking around and, of, uh, you know, uh, seeing what's happening and, and talking with each other and all. But he is, uh, I think, very, 
very alert to that. The way he sizes up Simon the clerk, uh, at first you think maybe Simon the clerk is going to be quite a, an interesting person that, you know, is just sort of benign, but uh, because we're, we're told early on that he was, has a big following in America, and now he's a big following here in England, and uh, they're even talking about the fact that when the war is over, his wonderful message could be a message that could help cure Germany and stuff like that. Things like that. Where Charles Williams throws those in, and the kind of this this spiritual uh, uh, giant is what he's supposed to be, and he and he has a kind of a spooky look about him. But uh, Charles Williams saw that that people would could be easily tempted by someone who appears to be very spiritual, appears to be very, oh, and by the way, I didn't even bring that up, but he is famous for doing healings too. And he does healings for people, mostly psychic healings. And, uh, but it's, it's something that I think Charles Williams, uh, maybe if you read him, he would help be, give you some protection against that kind of temptation. Uh, so that would be, that would be Lewis, not so much in the same way, though it's f a lot of people are very interested in comparing uh, the All Hallows Eve and that hideous strength, which uh, is the Lewis book where there is also a, a, the cultic element is present. But uh, they're they're really different in the way they they handle it. Hi, Tina. What's your question? Hi. Hi, Earl. Thank you so much. Um, my question is, towards the end of the summary of All Hallows' Eve, um, you were, um, you mentioned the difference between the baptisms, one of um, the baptism of forgiveness of sins, as an example, how Betty was baptized by the nurse, and then I think uh, the forgiveness of, of repentance, as uh, John the Baptist was an example, so... Um, if you can just elaborate a little bit on that. Yes. Thank you. Well, there uh, in, in the book, Forgiveness of Sins, he's being just, uh, I think, theologically responsible there, that uh, there is no question that the baptism of John the Baptist, you just read the book of Acts and read, uh, of course, Acts 19 and St. Paul when he's in, in Corinth and Ephesus makes that clear too. The baptism for repentance is John the Baptist's baptism of washing, and they were not un they were not unusual in the first century because uh, the the Pharisee movement had washings, and they were washings were very and they're devout and very good, and and they were in a sense washings for cleansing yourself of uh, uh, in order to prepare yourself so you could rightly take. The, the meal or rightly be involved with people or in, involved in the, in the temple. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit in our lives is different. And that's where St. Paul is very clear on that in Romans uh, 5 and 6. And, in, and of course, so is St. Paul in, in his teaching in Corinth and Ephesus. The baptism of, of the Holy Spirit is the baptism of assurance of God's grace for you of what is completed, not your repentance. Uh, you, you re it's wonderful when you, we repent, but repentance is not the same as receiving uh, the gift and the, and, the, and the blessing of what God has done for us. 
and that and that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's it's the forgiveness of sins, the what God has done as an event in our behalf, and uh, and that's the that's the water, the washing of the water is of that. And all right, hi Keith, what's your question? Hello Earl, yeah. and just really great to be here. I started following after this good fine man uh, from my fraternity house in 1965 to Calvin Club. So great to be here, as did my wife Sue from her sorority house. Um, you've spoken about the communion of saints, and I love this because you're bringing alive to me something that I've never really quite maybe understood or thought of, but if you could talk a little bit about what is the communion of saints, I'm understanding it in a very wonderful way that we to one another as believers impart to one another a kind of uh, protective covering. We pray for one another. We come alongside one another. That's the communion we share together, is it? Um, that's pretty yeah. exciting to me. Well, you know, I, uh, yes, the, uh, there is a mystery when you pray for someone, and there is a mystery of the fact that you're, uh, you're uh, bringing another human life in, in behalf of the Lord. We are given that, you know, the priesthood is for all believers, not just the priesthood. But it's, uh, we get that wonderful gift from Martin Luther that's the priesthood of all believers because that role of the priestly role if that we have is the role of prayer. Prayer is seen as priestly in the New Testament where we are bringing someone before the Lord and praying for them. And we, can, and we do it for the, with our children. And, we're, and, and that's why I love that. I liked reading that little section where the, uh, the, the nursemaid what she said about that little girl when she uh, baptized her. And she said, now I know I shouldn't be doing this because it should be done by the clergy and there should be godfathers and godmothers around and they were, they were just none around. So I just did it. But then I asked the Holy Spirit to be the godmother. Now that is good theology. I'm going to let, let the Holy Spirit be the godfather and the godmother and protect this little girl, but I want this girl protected. She knew something was wrong in that house, that there was something happening that was of, of very bad darkness. And so that she did the best she could and she got fired immediately. And that's why it's her daughter who is the maid that is in the house now with Mrs. Wallingford. And that is another, another thing that's kind of beautiful because she keeps, uh, saying little one-liners to uh, Richard. And when Richard is, wants to go in and, and, and uh, Jonathan want to go in and get this girl and take her to lunch, she says, yes, just go ahead and do it. Leave. And, and uh, I'll tell Lady Waterf Walter Walter Waterford, uh, Wallingford, you know, we have a, a district here called Wallingford, so it fouls me up on her name. But I'll tell Lady Wallingford that you have gone to lunch with her. You go. And it's a little maid who is the daughter of the great maid who baptized this girl. And now is also, now that's community of saints. She is protecting and playing a role. 
she saw that I need to I need to be there for this person. And I think that is a beautiful thing and Charles Williams wanted to preserve that because thank God for people that are praying for you. And uh, you know, I'll never forget, can I tell a little personal story when I went back to Berkeley after being in Manila for a n number of years in here and then I went back to be the pastor at the Berkeley Church and I was there 21 years and the the janitor of First Presbyterian Church was c named Kerr and uh, and his wife and they lived in the church and they were the janitors and and he had a, he, he had a way of being kind of a little bit like puddle glum a little bit uh, gruff but you know he had a heart of gold and uh, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, the last day we were in the sanctuary of, of the first church, uh, we we all sang Great is Thy Faithfulness because we had to tear the building down because we are going to build a brand new building there when I was the pastor there. And so we had our worship service there. And then we all went outside to go to where we were going to worship for the next few weeks while we were built or months while we were building the new building. And uh, then... Uh, Mr. Kerr, who was the janitor, was the last to leave the sanctuary, and he was carrying Mary Taylor, the organist, in his in his arms because she always disobeyed his rules and practiced the organ way too late, and kept he and his wife awake at night. But she was noted for practicing so much in the organ. So the last thing that happened, it was so beautiful, is that she came out, he came out carrying her. But you know. We had a kind of a little party, and he uh, made some jokes and told about how uh, I was uh, an intern there when I was at seminary, and I caused a lot of ruckus and a lot of trouble because I drove that bus and got into trouble so much with that bus, driving the youth and all. And he said, you were quite a pain in the neck. And uh, he said to me in front of everybody, but then he said to me, he said, you know, my wife Vera and I kind of took a, a little bit uh, notice of you when you were an intern here and you know Earl we have prayed for you every single day since you were an intern here every day and that means all the time I was in Princeton all the time I was here at UPC for eight years all the time I was in Manila for six years and then finally I get back to Berkeley and then she, he's retiring and he says I just will never get over that he said Vera and I just sort of decided we better pray for this boy. And so we have prayed for you every single day. Well, you know, I don't know about you, but when you know that there are people that are praying for you and that care about you, it, and I think that is at the core of what Charles Williams is trying to, in the fantasy story, is showing with that little maid when she tells Richard and Jonathan, you get out of here with, this, with that girl right now and take her to lunch. And then she told Mrs. Waterford that they insisted they insisted on going to lunch with her. And, uh, you know, I just love it. But, uh, and so Williams does that in a very wonderful, whimsical way there. But, you know, it is a huge theme. It is a mystery theme in the gospel. And that is the mystery of the authority of your prayers. That when you pray, I mean, our Lord said it. Hitherto you have not asked anything in my name. Ask in it, uh, so that your joy may be full. I want you to ask. And you know, that is one of the best things you can ask for. If you've got some young person that you're noticing and you're watching their life unfold, pray for them every day or pray for them and, uh, and lift them up. And, they, and now 
uh, he is saying it, it has power. And it does. The New Testament said it first before Charles Williams hinted at it. Now something I always enjoy. Shirley has a question. Go ahead, Shirley. I don't know what I'd do without you, Dick. Um, it's been very interesting. I, I'm just going to give a little brief comment. For 60 years, 62 years, I've been listening to Earl. And this is all new to me. Uh, but I've wondered what's been keeping him up, I don't know, the last three, four weeks till 12, 1, 1 2, reading All Hallows Eve and trying to figure it out. I knew that he uh, read it years ago, but he has been totally uh, just... Yeah, okay, that happened too. But I have a question, um, Earl. You know, I come more from the psychosocial aspect of behavior. And there is a theory that in order to be really emotionally healthy, that it requires a person to be able to forgive. And without forgiveness, there, the conclusion would be that the individual is not able or not really emotionally healthy. And we could go on to say that can even affect our physical health. So I'm going to ask you a question now instead of on the way home driving. Um, how would you integrate this concept with theology? Uh, well, that you have to you have to be able to you have to be able to forgive if you're really going to be praying for someone, right? Yeah, you really have to, and uh, because you have to be able to say their life is in the hands of the Lord who's bigger than they are and bigger than I am, and maybe I have something that I think is offensive or something that they're doing I think is wrong, but if, if, I, if I keep myself as judge, I have a hard time praying and being supportive of them uh, in, in an encouraging way. And I think maybe uh, that that is definitely a, a, a that is a great theme that I think is it's interesting in the in this story that Lester has that role that she has to play with Evelyn. Remember, I told you there's these two women that were both killed the same moment when the airplane crashed on them, a German plane crashed on them and killed them on the streets of London. And Ev Evelyn is. Uh, was very mean-spirited to uh, uh, Betty, who is the third person that they were all growing up with. And uh, Lester, at first, doesn't want to even be near Evelyn, but here they are both dead, and they're the only people that can talk to each other in all of London because everybody else doesn't exist around them. And, and she finally has to make peace with uh, how obnoxious Evelyn is. And so there is a little story, a sub-story within the story. I think we'll talk about this a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's good to know that you two are speaking again. <clears throat> do, you, uh, do you have any final comments that you want to make tonight, Earl, on a really important subject, obviously, and a very interesting couple of books? Uh, no, I, I do feel it's timely. Uh, I feel it's timely because uh, we need to know that uh, temptation uh, 
Charles Williams is actually grappling with temptation. The biggest thing he's grappling with is what tempts these people to, uh, uh, you know, if it's fear or if it's uh, a desire for power, it's different things that are tempting. And I think uh, uh, he gives some, uh, I really believe, uh, and this is the advantage of, fa of a fantasy story, he gives us in sort of that extreme setting, he gives us a chance to see uh, how, how pernicious temptation really is and how you have to withstand it and you have to have something bigger and better in its place. And, uh, and that's that picture that, that Jonathan drew of London with St. Paul's Cathedral in the very middle of it. It was just something about that picture. In light, which the clerk did not like in that painting. You painted this wrong. There's yeah. not light. There's not supposed to be light in this picture. There's not supposed to be light there. Yeah. And the clerk, because uh, he, see, he was being hired by the clerk to, to paint. And, and he was at first enamored by that. The, the clerk wanted him to paint more things. And, and he said, but this bad painting, this is a bad painting. I don't like it. It's wrong. Uh, but what he didn't like was that source of light that was coming out of St. Paul's Cathedral. Well, we're looking forward next month to uh, talking about Dorothy Sayers, the man who would become king. The man born to become Born to be king. That's much better. Uh, thank you so much for being with us tonight. You know, forgiveness is an important and practical subject, and I love what uh, the late Louis Smead said. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. Great words. Thanks for being with us. We'll look forward to seeing you next time on The Kindling Spirit.